Chapter 12. Storm at Sea. The tide was on the turn, and aboard the Alcestis and her sister galley, the rowers had been fed again and were already at their oars. But on the poop, the legate stood with the master and the pilot in hasty conference. Beric, watching the little intent group before the high stern, knew well enough what it was that held them there in low-voiced conclave. He knew the weather signs, the signs of clouds and flying birds, of sounding surge and the indefinable smell of coming tempest in the wind. Were they to sail on this tide? That was the question being decided up there on the poop. The master shook his head once doubtfully, but it seemed that the legit was in a hurry. He would always be in a hurry, that one, Beric thought, watching the handsome, impatient face under the crested helmet. There could never be any patience in him. He would make a bad hunter. Now the council had reached its decision, and clearly it was the one that the legit wanted. The ship's officers saluted and went quickly to their own stations. The Alcestis's trumpet sounded and was echoed back across the water from the geniculum, then from the transports. Instantly, the whole convoy sprang from its waiting stillness into activity. Seamen ran to their stations. Orders were hailed from ship to ship. On board the Alcestis, Porcus was already on the prowl as the oars were run out and secured by their leather thongs to the thullpins. The anchor was weighed dripping over the bow, and the square flamed red sail with its black eagle fell from the standing yard, curving out into the light wind as it sheeted home. And again, Beric felt that instant response of the galley, and the steersman put over the double rudder, and she slipped forward, heeling a little as wind and tide took her. One behind another, the transports slipped from their anchorage, their striped sails set. Lastly, the geniculum swung into line. On the rough landing stage and along the shore of the repair yard, small figures, growing smaller every moment, turned from their work to watch the convoy slip out onto the morning tide, nosing through the last shoal waters to the open sea. Five hours before noon, with the coast growing cloud faint behind the tail of the convoy, half the rowers were stood off. That was always the way during long passage rowing, which must go on day and night. There was no space to carry two teams of rowers, let alone the difficulty of chaining and unchaining such unruly cattle, and the danger that they would be to the galley when free of their benches. So until they dropped anchor in Dubris Harbor, under the green British Downs, it would be like this. One man to each oar rowing, while the other slipped beneath the bench and got what sleep he could, turn and turn about in four-hour watches. Beric had that first watch, while Jason lay huddled at his feet. It passed uneventfully, a long monotony of effort, the dip and long heave back with one's feet braced, and the rise and fall again of the white fur oar blades that caught the sunlight in an instant's dazzle with every stroke, the long swing of the gray North Sea swell. An hour before noon, the inner watch was relieved, and it was Jason's turn now, while Beric lay down on the deck exchanging the gray seas for the windy sky and the flaming curve of the sail and Jason's dark figure swinging to and fro above him. At mid-afternoon, the rowers were changed again, and again at first dark, when they were fed in their separate watches, first those who were just coming on to the oars, and then those who had just come off. An hour before midnight, Beric stumbled, still half asleep, back to his oar. Towards the end of the watch, the wind began to freshen, and the officer of the watch spoke a few hurried words to the master, who stood beside him, sniffing the weather. But Beric, swinging to and fro in his place, drugged by the unchanging rhythm of effort into a state in which he barely conscious he was rowing at all, took no heed of the strengthening easterly breeze. And when three hours after midnight, by the hoarder's hourglass, the watch was relieved again, 
He curled up like a dog under the bench and was instantly asleep. It seemed only a moment later that he woke to the whiplash searing across his neck, and he flung up an arm to shield his face. It came again, circling like a white-hot serpent round his wrist. Out! Tumble out, you loafing rats! Naso, the second overseer, was shouting. Out and take your, or- your share at the oars. The lash cracked again and again as Beric, still dazed with sleep and the tumult all about him, stumbled to his knees, and close beside him someone gave a howl of pain. Naso lurched on down the flying deck, shouting and laying about him as he went, whipping up the sleepers to join their mates at the bucking oars. As the dazed shock of his awakening cleared from Beric's head and slipped into his place beside Jason, he realized the uneasy motion of the galley and the strengthening wind that had gone round to the northeast. The singing of it was in the rigging above the creaking and fretting of the galley's timbers, and a burst of salt spray flew in his face. The orlean was alive and kicking under his hands. Dawn was already breaking, lemon-colored, beyond the rents in a hurry, winged bat sky, and gray sea had tumbling, ruffled look, quite unlike yesterday's long swell. Beric was dimly aware of the ordered coming and going of seamen, and the master's voice carrying clear above the wind. Man halyards and clue lines, then lower away, clue up, and men springing to shorten sail on the flapping of the loosened canvas. The light strengthened slowly, showing the convoy still well together on a sea that was flecked with white, a sea that ran empty of land to the dipping skyline on every side. As the hours went by, the wind strengthened steadily. It hummed in the rigging with a vibrant note that of a plucked lyre string. The reefed sail flapped like huge, ungainly wings, and showers of spindrift began to dash over the rowers as they struggled at the oars. Presently, the sail was furled as the Alcestis' steermen fought to keep her on course again against the wind that was already driving her too far south. For a while, now that the sail was furled, he seemed to succeed, but the wind was still rising and with more of north in it than time went by. But Beric knew only that, with the, rough, with the sea roughening every moment, the oars were becoming unmanageable. We must lay the oars in, he thought, over and over again with growing urgency. We must lay the oars in. Porcus on duty again came swaying and lurching down the deck, and he shouted the overseer, We must lay the oars in! Some of us will be killed! What matter? So that you row in the meantime, Porcus shouted back, and whip came the lash across Beric's shoulders, so that he plunged at the oar like a horse stung by a hornet. Row, you Tiber scum! Dogs! Awful! Row your hearts out if need be! Almost in the same instant, one of the rowers' few benches farther gave up off gave a sharp cry and slumped, growing over the kicking oar loom, which his mate was struggling to control single-handed. There's the first lot of broken ribs for you, Beric yelled after the overseer as he lurched off towards the accident. Porcus and a seaman bent over the growing, groaning wretch. Quite obviously, it was true. They would get no more rowing out of this one for a time. While Porcus lurched off to report to the hoarder, who had been at his post since the storm first grew ugly, the seaman half helped, half thrust the injured man from the bench onto the deck where he stretched out, groaning still among the feet of the rowers. Bring up one of the reserves, ordered the hoarder. There was no time to unshackle the man now. That must wait until three, until things grew easier. He was simply left to lie there while one of the reserve rowers, of which every galley carried a few, was brought up from the hold and thrust into his place. And the galley drove on with her complement of rowers intact once more. Meanwhile, beside the steersman on the poop, 
The master and the pilot of the Alcestis were confronting the legion. I dare not hold on like this any longer, sir, the master was saying respectfully but flatly. The legion was the legion, and he was only a shipmaster. But on board the Alcestis, he was king, and knowledge stiffened the angle of his grizzled beard. We shall not make it to Dubris. We're being driven farther off our course with every moment that goes by. The transports might make it themselves. They're sailing ships and can tack. We galleys cannot. Galleys are supposed to have rowers, the legion pointed out coldly. The rowers are flesh and blood, sir, and flesh and blood reaches breaking point at last. Ours have been rowing for so many hours, and the sea is getting up all the time. Soon we shall have to begin constant flogging to keep them pulling their full weight, and presently not even flogging will do it. And when we reach that point, he shrugged expressively, if we try to keep her on course any longer, we shall have a whole convoy of the barrier sands in two hours. That is so, sir, the pilot put on. If we alter course now, southwestward, we'll just about shave by, unless the wind starts over. For an instant, the legion was silent. His hard face turned to where, in so few hours, the shores of Britain should be lifting over the skyline beyond the galley's prow. Very well, he said at last, to the two anxious men beside him. You are the seaman, and it seems that I have no choice but to bow to your superior judgment. I shall go below and try to get some sleep. He turned to the poop ladder, and gathering the beating folds of his cloak about him, scrambled down it and disappeared with an undignified lurch through the little dark entrance of the cabin. The two officers glanced at each other in swift relief, and wasted no more time. The master swung round to a seaman. Run up the signal for altering course to larboard, and send someone up to the masthead to make sure that every ship of the convoy receives and answers it. Then, as the man went to obey, he turned back to the pilot. I think we will not make sail. The other agreed. No, sir. Better to use the rowers to get clear well, even if it kills a few of them. Then we can lay the oars in and show a bit of sail and let her run down through the Gaulish fret. The wind will have gone round to the northwest and blown itself out by tomorrow's dawn. A long yellow pennant ran up the masthead, whipping out like a pale bright flame in the wind, and already a man was swinging himself aloft in the tiny fighting top above the yard. For a short while he remained there, shielding his eyes with his palm. Then he cupped his hand to his mouth, and his hail came down through the tumult of wind and sea and flapping canvas to the men on the after deck. Signal received by all, sir. The master flung up a hand in reply, then spoke to the steersman. Bring her round. Aye, sir. The men set their weight on the rudder bar. The great double rudder swung over slowly, and the galley turned in a wide sea swallow through the almost quarter of a circle. Steady as you go, Beric was instantly aware of the galley's altered course. Her uneasy rolling ceased. She was no longer plowing diagonally across the seas, but running with them, with a purposeful forward lift up the watery slopes of the waves, and a dip and a slip forward into the troughs like a gull. But that did little to cease the task of rowers. How much longer, Beric wondered desperately. Do they want to kill us? We must lay the oars in. And he was not alone in his wondering. All along the rowing benches, there was beginning to be a muttering that rose to a breathless, sobbing outcry. We must lay the oars in, someone shouted. Fiends out of Tartarus couldn't row in this sea. Someone else took up the cry, and it was echoed and re-echoed back and forth all down the length of the galley. Do you want to kill the lot of us? We must lay the oars in. Lay the oars in. Porcus was lurching up and down the heaving deck, his whiplash busy to quell the outcry, but always it broke out again behind him. 
Then the master came down from the poop. They saw him speak with the hoarder for a few moments. Porgus rolled up to join them and stood swaying to the motion of the galley, lithe as a cat on the balls of his feet. He said something, grinning, with a flash of white teeth in his copper face, and gave a suggestive flick to the lash in his hand. But the master shook his head impatiently and turned to look along the banks of rowers. He flung up his hand to draw their attention, and his voice, with the wind behind it, carried clear above the tumult the full length of the galley so that even the men on the bow benches heard him plainly. Listen to me, all of you. It's no use your yelling the oars must be laid in, that you cannot row. There are 15 miles of quicksands over yonder, he pointed over the starboard bow. If we lay the oars in now, the odds are that we shall be on the southern end of them in something under two hours. Show me that if fiends out of Tartarus couldn't row in this sea, there are 80 galley slaves in the Alcestis who can. And when we make Dubris, there shall be wine, real wine, and red meat for all of you, as much as you can gorge. If you do not, then the odds are that we shall not make Dubris. That is all. Standing there for a moment after he had finished, his gaze swept challengingly along the rowing deck. And then a queer thing happened, for sullenly, as though against their wills, the rebellious and exhausted ranks set up a hoarse and broken shout that might in free men have been a cheer. The master acknowledged it with a flourish of his upflung arm and then turned back to the poop ladder. There was no more outcry on the rowing benches. The rowers were fighting for their lives, for whatever slim chance there might be for the crew, if the galley was wrecked, the slaves chained to their benches had none. The life of the galley was quite literally their life too. Yet they were fighting for the galley herself also. They hated the Alcestis, and with good cause. She had been a floating hell to them, but they fought for her now as men fight for a thing they love. Half blind with the flying spray, sick and gasping with exhaustion, their hearts bursting in their breasts, they fought the wildly fucking oars, struggling to keep some sort of time to the resonant clack, 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 pulsing through the turmoil of the storm that was the hoarder's hammer on the sounding table. One man was killed at his oar, and three more had ribs broken before the last the order came in. Stand by to lay in oars. A great sob of relief burst from the streaming lungs of the rowers at the hoarder's hammer ceased to beat, and they set themselves to the last effort of lifting the oars clear of the full pins and laying them in. A few moments later, the oars had been housed along the flying deck, the bull's hide storm shields shipped over the oar ports, and the Alcestis was running before the wind under half sail. The, the spent rowers slid numbly from their benches to huddle under the shelter of the bulwarks, their heads down between their heaving shoulders, their backs turned to the wind and the stinging spray of the green following seas. It was not until then that Jason began to cough. It was the same dry, strangled cough that Beric knew of old, but this time it went on and on, and still coughing, Jason sagged forward onto his face. Beric caught him in the arms and held him, feeling the small, terrible cough rasping through his own body as harshly as though the wasted body of his oar mate. When it was over, Jason lay quietly against his knees. His eyes were shut, and he was gray-white to the lips as Beric bent over him. What is it? Beric demanded. Are you hurt? His shackled hand was moving hurriedly over the other's chest and sides, feeling for broken ribs. Where's the pain? Did the oar catch you? Jason opened his eyes. No, he said quite steadily. I am well enough. I felt sick for the moment, and the world, it seemed to go far away. That's all. It's coming back now. 
He made a weak attempt to sit up, but Barrett pressed him back. Bide still. Is my knee not a fine enough pillow for you? He made a weak... Um, Jason relaxed again with a ghost of a smile, a twisted fawn smile that, like his voice, still held the shadow of bygone reckless laughter. The hoarder and his men were coming round now, unshackling the dead rower and the injured ones. One of them went over Jason, much as Barrick had done, but finding no broken ribs, grunted. This one's foundered, but he'll be fit to row again when the time comes, and moved on. Wine was issued to the rowers, real wine, harsh and fiery, and a double ration of black beans. The wine put a little life into them and warmed them against the chill of exhaustion and the cutting wind-blown spray, and the beans stayed their aching stomachs. Beric poured Jason's share of the wine into him, and a good deal of his own as well, and though it made him choke, it seemed to do him good, so that afterwards he was able to eat some of the black beans which Beric had saved for him in the lap of his drenched and filthy kilt. The wind was backing steadily but slowly, and the little convoy ran before it, strung out and scattered like a gale-blown skein of geese. On board, the Alcestis, all sense of time had ceased for the rowers, crouching on decks that were awash with their humped backs to the flowing seas, and there was only a present time of cold and wind and turmoil that seemed to stretch into an eternity. And they did not see, as the day turned towards evening, the dark coastline of Gaul lying low on the tossing skyline, nor know that the gale had gone bounding round to the northwest, not even that it was raining. Beric, still crouching over Jason, so as to shelter him with his own body from the sheets of hissing spray that dashed over the gunwale and forced their way through the shielded oar ports, slipped gradually into a state between sleeping and waking, an uneasy state in which he seemed to catch ragged glimpses of many dreams, without ever escaping from the tumult around him, without forever for an instant losing the fear that seemed to twist in his stomach because of Jason. The light began to fade, and the little convoy scattered now over miles of sea was scuttling down the coast of Gaul. As the Alcestis drew steadily nearer to the shore, the master and pilot stood together beside the steersman, gazing shoreward as the dark coastline unfurled. Keep her out a bit, the pilot ordered. And as the steersman's eased the rudder over a little, the master glanced at the man beside him, inquiringly, but without anxiety. He did not know this coast well himself, but he trusted his pilot. The other's face was alert and confident under his leather bonnet. Clearly, he knew what he was looking for and was sure of finding it. A green sea broke aft, sluicing all three men with water that could have made them no wetter than they already were, and as it foamed across the heaving deck and down among the rowing benches, the pilot gave a satisfied grunt. There she is, sir. In the dark wall of the coastline, a gap had appeared, which opened wider by mo moment by moment. The pilot gave another order to the steersman, setting his own hand on the kicking rudder bar as he did so, and the galley altered course slightly. The light was going fast, but the gap was widening faster into the mouth of a great river, and as the Alcestis ran towards it, suddenly, through the rain swaths and the deepening twilight, a light flared fiercely golden as a marigold above the darkening headland. Ah, there goes the beacon, the pilot said hand and eye, steady on the business of the moment. Best get the sail down and have the oars out again, sir. So, in the last fading of the gale-torn dusk, the Alcestis, with her weary rowers, once more at their oars, ran in safely under the flaming beacon at the mouth of the great Gaulish River and dropped anchor in the comparative shelter of the shore. <laughs>